Welcome to the supporting cast. This is Eli Goldsmith. Today's guest is Mark Hoppus, singer, bassist, and founding member of the band Blink-182, which has sold more than 50 million albums worldwide. In this episode, Mark speaks about the founding of Blink-182, finding a home in the mid-90s punk rock scene in San Diego, and then soaring to meteoric heights in the late 90s and early 2000s, eventually hitting number one on MTV and playing to sold-out arenas, which they still do today, by the way. Mark also speaks about life as a touring musician, how to create an environment of kindness and support and fun that translates to both their internal crew and the paying public, how to write songs from the heart while maintaining a sense of humor, and how the support of their families carried Blink-182 early on and to this day. I should also mention, I was in a high school punk band in the mid-90s. We used to open for Blink-182. We actually signed to the same record label as Blink-182, Cargo Records, which Mark references during our talk. We even toured North America with Blink-182 as part of the Vans Warp Tour 99. So it was a very fun hour for me personally to reminisce about that era and a real privilege to have gotten to know Mark and his family and create a new friendship so many years later. This is the supporting cast. Yes. Welcome to the supporting cast. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. It's our pleasure. Uh, so first question. I always like to start with the present. Tell us, for those who might be listening who aren't aware of the current Blink-182, uh, who's in the band and kind of how you're doing and where you are in, in the career of Blink-182 right now, enlighten us. Okay. Blink-182 in 2020. Yes. It is me, it is Travis Barker, mm -hmm. and Matt Skiba. Matt Skiba came to us about five years ago when uh, Tom quit right before we were going to go into the studio and record the California album. Mm -hmm. Matt stepped in, joined the band at that point, was mm -hmm. a natural fit. We had some shows that we had booked, and Matt came in and played the shows and was awesome. Mm -hmm. He's been a friend forever. He's a rad guitarist and a great lyricist and an amazing singer and just a, the right fit. So mm -hmm. after we played those few shows, we were like, hey, let's get in the studio and see what happens. Got in the studio, wrote a bunch of songs. Mm -hmm. California came out in 2016, I believe, mm -hmm. and went was nominated for a Grammy. Yeah. Uh, it was a big success. Yeah. We toured all summer. We toured for a couple of years on that, and then... In 2019, we released the next album, which was called Nine. Mm -hmm. It's our ninth studio album. We toured that, and now we are gearing up to tour that album this summer. And you're doing some huge festivals this summer, We are. Right? We're playing Firefly, which is, I think, 80,000. Not Firefest, just to clarify. It's not Firefest. Not Firefest, <laughs> although we were supposed to be doing that. We were literally about to get on airplanes. To go to Firefest. To go to Firefest. Our um our production team, who are amazing people, by the way, yeah. they can make, if you give us a power cord and a flat <laughs> surface to play on, we will make a show happen. Which is what I want to talk about a little bit later, yeah, yeah. is the supporting cast around you when you tour. Right? Uh, yeah, of course. Yeah. Uh, but they said, yeah, uh, we don't think that the Fire Festival is going to happen, so we pulled out of that. We were playing Firefly this summer, which is in Delaware in a huge festival. Uh, we have festivals kind of all throughout the U.S. and Canada and our own our own dates as well. Yeah. 
And these are big. I mean, these are huge. This Billie Eilish is co-headlining with you at, mm-hmm. at Firefest, Rage Against the Machine. I mean, some of the biggest. Not stars. Firefest, Firefly. Firefly, not Firefest. <laughs> I made the mistake myself yeah. at Firefly in Delaware, which is. And how many people will will when you guys play that night at at Firefly uh, or Summerfest or one of these big ones you're doing this summer? How many people are, are there? Anywhere from it? between I don't know forty to eighty thousand people. Forty to eighty thousand people. Yeah. Are you have you gotten used to that, or is there still this adrenaline or a rumble in your belly when you're kind of I, walking a stage? I kind of get the same amount of nerves if I'm playing for two hundred people or for a hundred thousand people. Hmm. I don't know. I every show you go out and you hope that you sing well and play well and perform well and engage and something cool happens and hopefully touch wood most of the time it does and yeah. sometimes you walk out and things fall apart and it's not the best show but uh you go out there and do your best yeah and you you mentioned that the two other guys in the band Travis and Matt are um, I mean Travis has now been in the band for more than 20 yeah yeah he years. joined in 97 or 98 yeah but you were the only original founding member I yes guess, still I've been in the band since 1992 what keeps you in it this long, what the do you still- money? Just the money. <laughs> no, uh, I love playing music, and I like seeing the world, and I like my job. I like that it's never the same thing day in and day out. I like that I get to create something in my car. Like I'll be driving, and I'll have an idea for a song, yeah. or an idea for a lyric, or I'll wake up in the middle of the night and have some. Like I woke up this morning and went out and grabbed my guitar and recorded this little guitar idea. Hmm. And to think that there's the chance that at some point that song that I had an idea for in my car in the mm-hmm. morning or whatever will be played in front of 50,000 people with them singing the words back to me is incredible. Yeah. Well, let's... So there's a... This podcast is called The Supporting Cast. It's about the people around us who've supported us. And I there's sort of... When I look at your career and the things that you do, and I've got to see some of it up close. I've been able to come to some of your shows... There's a dichotomy that I have observed. On one hand, it feels like there are few professions that have more of a supporting cast than yours when you're out on tour. I mean, you have from truck drivers to catering to base tech to label and management, tour management, all these people kind of there to support you. But at the same time, there are a few professions where there's more pre- more pressure <laughs> on you individually to perform because all of these people are are sort of all there so that you can do the one thing you do, right? Uh, which puts some pressure on you at the same time. I don't know if you can speak to how that feels. It feels weird when you're on tour. And uh, many, many years ago, it drove me crazy because the worst thing that can happen, well, one of the worst things that can happen is you get sick on tour. As a singer, you get yeah. sick on tour, you lose your voice, and you are faced with your tour manager who's coming to you and saying, are you well enough to sing tonight or do you want to tell these 15,000 people that they need to turn around and go home? Yeah. If you are an athlete, if you are a stage performer, if you are uh, an, an actor in a lot of ways, mm-hmm. they can – there's usually a backup an quarterback under, an or an understudy yeah. or somebody else. But when you play in a band – and this just three people in our band. There's only three people on stage. So if one of us – is off yeah. or having a difficult time or is not feeling well, it, it translates. Yeah. So I used to get really – the whole time, the second that I leave my house, go on tour until the day that I get home, I'm on high alert. Am I getting sick? Am I getting sick? Am I getting sick? And I used to just you know, obsessively sanitize my hands, which now, by the way <laughs> – Coronavirus. Yeah. Now, we're, by the way, we're everyone's all, on, We're all acting like Mark Hoppus. Everyone's so. on my team now. Yeah. Uh, 
but yes, we we uh, the, as touring in a band, being a performer, a singer specifically, is very difficult because you can't get sick, and you're just traveling, and you're on planes, and you're on buses, and you're in hotels, and you're shaking people's hands, yeah. and you're staying up late and getting up early, and it, it's it's a hard lifestyle when you're out on the road. Mm-hmm. But we do get to travel very comfortably, and yeah, I'm not complaining about that at all. Yeah, but and you literally have a meet and greet before most shows, yes. where your job is literally to shake hands with yes. hundreds of people. Uh huh. But you always have. Uh, there's always um, some hand sanitizer there. Yes, I there guess. is. But even still, there's people almost at every single meet and greet that will say, Oh my God, I'm so sick, but I would not, I just couldn't stay home and pass up the opportunity <sighs> to come and meet you guys, which is meant as a giant compliment. And it, and it is a giant compliment. But at the same time, I'm like, I still have 50 more shows on this tour. <laughs> you yeah. can't, you can't cough on me right now. Yeah. So how do you cope with the anxiety now? Do you just, have you learned to live with it? I've or? just learned to live with it as best I can and just know that there are some, things that I can't control and I do the best. I, I drink lots and lots of water. I sleep as much as I can. Yeah. Um, you know, I gave up smoking cigarettes a long time ago, yeah. which is one of the best things I've ever done. Yeah. Uh, and we don't party or anything. We're pretty pretty mellow. Right. And can you speak to this, then the, the people who are supporting you? You have some of the same people who've been working with you on tour for years. I mean, there's a yeah. private security guy that I've met who works with you, who's been with you since 2001 or something? Yeah, like since 99, actually. 99. We have, yeah, one of our security has been with us since 99. We have a uh, drum tech that has been with us for longer than that. We have a bass tech that's been with us for decades. Uh, we travel, we have a core backline crew, which is um, front of house, monitor, drum tech, bass tech, guitar tech, lighting. That's basic. That's our basic crew mm-hmm. everywhere we go. Mm-hmm. We have a tour manager who we've been with for a while. We have a production manager who's in charge of all that. When we toured last summer, I believe we had 12 or 15 trucks and maybe 11 buses. We were, oh tra- we were, traveling, with, we were traveling with 70 people, and we would hire a couple hundred locals every day. Wow. 15 trucks of equipment. Hmm. Uh, if you're moving a... Average size suburban home, everything in the house is about one truck. Yeah. And think about doing that 15, 15 houses, moving enough to fill 15 houses every day, every single day. Wow. Off the truck, out of the cases, put together, hung up, everything synced. The video monitors have to be calibrated. The sound yeah. system has to be tested and calibrated. Things have to be fixed. Smoke machines and lasers and moving, <laughs> uh, moving lights and moving trusses and everything else. That all has to get put together between like eight o'clock in the morning and two o'clock in the afternoon. They have maybe six hours to put the whole thing together. Imagine unloading fifteen houses worth I, of I can't. I don't even like worth of furniture moving my own yeah. you know condo. <laughs> and they do that every day. Wow. And this most recent tour, Travis was in a rotating uh, sphere yeah. playing drums mm-hmm. where he flipped upside down and was playing drums. I mean, he that's gotta be re-rigged. Every yes, every day. single day. Yeah. Every single day it has to be put together, tested run if anything's wrong with it they have to we travel with carpenters and electricians and welders wow. and all kinds of people so so how do you i mean this is where it could translate to any profession but how do you when you find good people what's your ethic and and blink Two's ethic just on how you treat people um how you you kind of keep people not just loyal but keep people coming back wanting to come back wanting to work with blink Two, not going gosh those guys are are crazy. We, we, we want to go work on the Foo Fighters tour or something yeah. like that. 
Um, well, actually, a lot of the people that we work with work with the Foo Fighters. <laughs> okay. Well, your manager is. <laughs> yeah, we yeah. have managers. We have a production manager. We have uh, people that have worked with the Foo Fighters. I think <laughs> Maybe you just, that's a bad example. I think you treat people well, and, and you respect their talents, and you respect what they are doing for you. The, the people that are traveling with us end up working much harder than any of us in the band do mm-hmm. every single day. Mm-hmm. As far as the show component of it, we go and we do our stuff, and you know, work out and do press and do mm-hmm. meet and greets and do all kinds of stuff, but. The, the men and women that put together the show every day work very hard, and they work very long hours. Mm-hmm. Uh, our production manager is normally up at about 6 o'clock in the morning and goes to bed at about 1 or 2 o'clock in the morning. Wow. Day after day after day. Yeah, wow. So I think, I think honestly, that you keep good people by, by respecting them and, and appreciating the hard work that they do. Yeah. I know a lot of bands that that the 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 uh, energy backstage is very negative and people are in fear of their jobs mm. and the whole thing operates uh, do not mess up one tiny thing or else you'll get fired yeah. and i don't think that's a good environment to have i think that you know touch wood if if we have a bad day at our job yeah we have a bad show maybe the lights don't work mm-hmm. maybe something you know Maybe the sound cuts out for a little bit. That's the worst case scenario. Yeah. You know, other people in their jobs, you know, uh, a police officer or a surgeon or a pilot, you know, a bad day at their jobs is a terrible day. Yeah. A lot lot graver consequences. Yeah. At our job, you know, we're we're fun. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) We're here to, you know, we're here to entertain people and play music and connect with people. and, And we are the... We are the release at the end of people's week or at the end of a long day. It, you know, it's yeah. an honor. People come to watch our show. It's a huge deal. Well, that's the, the vibe you're trying to create internally within the tour is probably mm-hmm. the same vibe you're trying to create for the audience. Yes. What you're trying to say. Right? Totally. Yeah. yeah. So I want to take us back to the beginning. Where did you grow up? I grew up in a small town in the high desert of California called Ridgecrest. Okay. It is there because it supports a military base. The Navy does all their testing and development of their aircraft warfare. Hmm. It's wow. in the middle of the desert, so they can test, you know, firing missiles from airplanes and, mm-hmm. and things like that. And your it. father was in the military, is that He right? was in the Department of Defense. Ah. He's literally a rocket scientist. He helped design <sighs> missiles and bombs for the Navy. Wow. So, yeah, that's where I grew up. And it was a strange, it's this tiny town. We had one stoplight. Literally, when they installed the second stoplight in our town, it was a big deal. There was like a parade and... You know, the mayor came out and cut the cut the tape, and it was a big deal. Yeah. And because it was so isolated, it was this weird combination of, like, brilliant scientists and, you know, aerospace engineers and talented jet fighter pilots and mechanics and also just strange desert rat, you know, people that live in the middle of the desert. <laughs> yes, have chosen to sort of ostracize themselves. Exactly, there. that. Yeah, right. The outcast, the, the self-ostracized, I would say. Yeah, got it. And so were you always into music from a young age or did I grew you find up, it later on? I g- grew up and my parents listened to a lot of kind of pop standards, everything from Elton John and Neil Diamond, Donna Summer, uh, the Beatles. Uh, so that was what we listened to mm-hmm. in the car and at home. And then the first album that I bought with my own money was when I turned 10 years old, my one grandparent gave me a Walkman, a Sony Walkman, yeah. which was the highest of high tech yeah. in 1982. And another grandparent gave me $10, and I went and bought the cassette for Michael Jackson's Thriller. Ah. So that was the first album that I bought. Okay. 
And it wasn't until I was in high school, probably in 10th grade, that I really got into punk rock music. Hmm. And was it, you know, some people, again, who are listening don't understand the nuances of punk rock music. Some people think of punk rock, Sex Pistols and Ramones and sort of the New York punk rock. There's also sort of something different that was happening out in California. In California... Well, see, the thing that I liked, there was a band called The Descendants in, in California. The yeah. California scene, right. Southern California, was generally more, I don't know, poppy, mm-hmm. positive. Melodic. Yeah. Melodic. Uh, East Coast hardcore, talking great generalities, mm-hmm. uh, was a little more political, a little angrier, yeah. a little more aggressive. Yeah. Uh, and I discovered West Coast punk rock, punk rock, and it was really like like uh, the Beach Boys on Way Too Much Coffee. <laughs> yeah. You right, know? Right. You could sing along with it. There were melodies, uh, little riffs. It's catchy. Yeah. And even though, you know, they were complaining about their parents, it was stuff that I could relate to. Instead of politics and, right. you know, geopolitical issues, it was more like, I'm mad at my parents. <laughs> yeah. This girl dumped me. Uh, <laughs> let's go get Mexican food. <laughs> yeah. Those kind of things. Which turned into many themes in Blink-182. Yeah, which we emulated in Blink, well. yeah. Yeah. And it was also associated back then with surf, skateboard, snowboard yes. culture as well. Was Extreme that... sports. Yes. And that was where I know when I started watching surf videos with my friends who watched Taylor Steele made mm-hmm. surf videos. That's how I was introduced to a lot of these bands as a teenager. Were you a skateboarder? Were you a... Grew up skateboarding. Yeah. Got it. And what was your schooling like in Ridgecrest? You go to public school? Go to public school. Okay. Yeah. And were there teachers that you had in high school that you recall that influenced you or that you still think about today? I had a, I don't remember his name, but I had a teacher in 11th and 12th grade who taught Shakespeare and English lit. Hmm. And he was one of those teachers that you feel like they should make a movie about where (laughs) he was the only teacher that seemed like he actually cared if the kids understood what he was talking about and cared that he made Shakespeare specifically interesting Hmm. to the class. Yeah. And I liked it so much, and I and I grew up reading and loved reading so much mm-hmm. that I, I initially was going to college to become a high school English teacher. Hmm. My grandma was a teacher forever. My father-in-law was a teacher forever. My grandfather uh, was a teacher and a principal. And in fact, when he passed away, there's a school in Riverside named after him. Uh, so yeah, a lot of educators uh, in my family. Okay. So then take us there. So then you graduate from Ridgecrest, and you go to college in San Diego? Yep. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Got it. Go to college in San Diego. Uh, to go to Cal State San Marcos, Mm -hmm. which had just opened and had a really strong teaching curriculum. Mm -hmm. Moved to San Diego. Uh My sister uh, and mother and stepfather were living in San Diego at the time. Mm -hmm. So I moved into their house. My sister said, I said, I've been playing bass with a bunch of uh, guys in a band back in Ridgecrest. I Mm -hmm. want to start a band in San Diego. And she said, oh, you know what? My boyfriend's best friend plays guitar. You should meet him. He's looking to start a band as well. And so that day I went over and met Tom DeLong huh. and we started writing songs. Wow. August and of 2000, no, August of 1992. 92. And did you immediately kind of connect musically and personally? And Yeah. Yes. Immediately it was like, uh, it was like we were finishing each other's sentences and yeah. he said, so do you have any ideas for songs? And I played him I go, yeah, I've been messing around with this one idea, and I played him this riff on bass. And he goes, oh, my gosh, that sounds exactly like what I'm working on on this other idea, and it fit together perfectly. And the song that we wrote the day that we met is called Carousel, of course, and yeah. we still play it in our set even today. Oh, yeah. That was the uh, big hit off your your first... First album, yeah. First album, yeah. 
And I remember back, I had met you guys only a few years after that, and your sense of humor, your senses of humor seemed aligned. Oh, yeah. We, and that was really Yeah, we were just suburban skate punk kids with foul mouths and <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> we said a lot of bad things. <laughs> yeah, but funny. Funny, funny things. Yes, they weren't mean spirited. No, 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 never, no. never, ever, ever mean spirited. But we did, we do, we did say a lot of bad words, and we still do. <laughs> so you guys start writing songs together in a garage or whatever in a bedroom, and then how does how do you guys start actually playing gigs and becoming a real thing? At least before you get signed to a record. We, Tom specifically, called. Everybody just cold called clubs. Hmm. Can we play? Can we play? Can we get in? There was this uh, bar in southern San Diego mm-hmm. called the Gorilla Pit, mm-hmm. and it it was kind of known for being a biker bar. Mm-hmm. I didn't know it at the time, but they said, "Yeah, you know, it was like a Tuesday night or something." I said, "Yeah, you can come down and play." Hmm. So we we're like oh, fantastic. We were all psyched. <laughs> Loaded up my mom's station wagon with all of our equipment. Drove it down there. Unloaded everything. Set it all up. There was literally the bartender mm-hmm. and one person at the bar. <laughs> and we started playing. And we got through a song. And the bartender said, oh, sorry, guys. Can you turn down, please? Can you please turn down? <laughs> Nobody paying attention at all. Literally, we're playing to a, the, an empty room except for the back of the one person at the bar. We got through three songs. And the bartender said, you know what, guys? Let's just call it a night. Here, have a Snapple. You guys earned it. <laughs> that was your first that show. That was our first show. Got it. Uh, and then we just started kind of. We recorded a demo, mm-hmm. and I would we would get the demo pressed in cassette form, mm-hmm. and I would drive around to all the record stores in San Diego and leave our demo on consignment mm-hmm. at these independent record stores, and then, you know, we would go play a local small club called Soma, mm-hmm. where they would let small bands play, and if you got enough people to go and see your band play in the underground in the basement, yeah. then you got kicked up to the main stage, which is where they would have national touring acts. Right. And I think you had to get. I don't remember what it was, a few hundred people to say, I'm coming to see this band. Mm. And just, you know, working and working and working. Eventually, like, I would go into record stores and they'd be sold out of our cassettes. Uh-huh. And I would be like, well, my mom didn't buy them. <laughs> and I'm pretty sure my friends didn't buy them. So who's buying these cassettes? Yeah. And we just started to get this little tiny spark in San Diego. Yeah. And there was a big, we were at a fortunate time in San Diego because there was a very uh, supportive live music scene there. People yeah. would go out and see bands and go out and see bands. Yeah. And there was like uh, a lot of venues that were playing music. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we got a lot of support right away. Got it. And so then how did it, so then you, shortly thereafter, you get signed to Cargo Records? Yes. They're the son of the owner of Cargo Records, because mm-hmm. Cargo is really known for kind of second wave nouveau grunge coming out of San Diego, mm-hmm. like Rocket from the Crypt and Drive Like Jehu and Fluff and and kind of like this this everybody kept saying in the early nineties, San Diego's gonna be the next Seattle. San Diego's uh-huh. gonna be the next Seattle. Huh. So Cargo Records was there at the right time, mm-hmm. at the right place. The son of the owner wanted him to sign Blink. And he just hated it. Like, it was nothing like any of the other bands, but he kept the son every morning would sneak out to his dad's car, put in our cassette into his dad's stereo, and turn up the radio all the way so that when he started his car in the morning, he just started listening. And so, kind of to appease his son, he signed Blink to wow. a deal, an independent record deal. And I think that the owner of uh, the label said, there's no way they're going to sell more than a 1,000 copies. No way. Wow. 
And I mean, we and that, did. Was, that was Cheshire Cat. That was Cheshire Cat, yeah. The first album that had Carousel on. Had it. Carousel on it. Yeah, and had you guys M&Ms. made some, some videos on, and you made some videos. Yeah, uh, and those were the videos song. that we made were mostly for uh, before. This is before YouTube when you would you, you would go out and buy, or there was a subscription where you would get videotapes in the mail of bands' videos. Okay, yeah, and that and that's kind of how our videos were. And then they eventually shown. made it to these surf videos I was talking and about. Then, yeah, well, and then yeah, then they were on like uh, you know. Uh, Taylor's videos and a, and a lot of the a lot of the surf skate community embraced us and put us in their videos. Yeah, used our music, mm-hmm. and we played a lot of those festivals. Like we did the snowcore tour. We mm-hmm. played uh, surf rider events, and we played surf championships, and we did uh, snowboarding, all kinds of stuff. We played all, yeah, and then of course the warp tour. Yeah, right. Um, you were obviously getting a lot of notoriety in San Diego. You were getting to play the Soma. Mm-hmm. You were doing some of these small tours. When did it start to feel like this is getting bigger? Well, we started, we would play like San Diego on a Friday, mm-hmm. Los Angeles on a Saturday. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, a couple weeks later, we play San Diego, Los Angeles, San Francisco. Santa Barbara. Santa Barbara. <laughs> and And kind of our little... Touring circle kept getting a little larger and a little larger, and the, uh, it started. The weekend started being longer and longer, and I kept adjusting my schedule at college, so yeah. I would take all my classes on like whatever Tuesday and Wednesday, so I could be playing shows Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, and come back for class on Tuesday oh, or whatever it was. And eventually, I, I was having to skip class. Yeah, my grades were not that great, and I went to my mom and I said, "I, I'm at this position now where we're kind of getting a little tiny." Mm-hmm. thing happening like we couldn't support ourselves mm-hmm. we would literally get paid enough money maybe $50 i have contracts that say $50 for blink to perform <laughs> and we would sit down after the show and say okay we have to get from wherever it is we have to get from salt lake to denver it's a 12 hour drive it's going to cost this much in gas if we take this $50 we can each get one taco bell burrito and still have enough money to get gas to go to the next show yeah and so i told my mom like i'm going to have to drop out of college or i'm going to have to stop doing the band and mm-hmm. she said you have the rest of your life to go back to college. You only get one chance to be in a band. Wow. Well, that's a good place to to sort of pause for a second. How did that feel at that point to have her give you that a okay? That's a was, tough thing for a, a parent. I know. To I do. don't know that. I don't know that I would give that <laughs> advice to my son. Uh, it was really cool, and she was. She has from day one been entirely supportive. She has come to all the shows. Hmm. She would, you know, we would go to Kinkos, and she would help cut out the artwork for the. Demos that we yeah. were bringing. Around. I mean, literally, we had to go to Kinko's, print out the artwork, yeah. cut it out with scissors, fold it all. I mean, we have pictures of us all in our living room with my sister and my mom and me just folding. Wow. Uh, so then from then, you get – eventually, you sign to MCA. You yes. to a major label. Yeah. Uh, what was sort of the ramp up to that point? Were you just guys started to get noticed more? Yeah, we were touring, touring more. We were touring quite a bit. Uh, in 1995, during the Cheshire Cat album, mm-hmm. because of uh, Taylor's surf videos, yeah. and Pennywise took us down to Australia, mm-hmm. uh, punk rock really hadn't broken second wave in Australia yet. Mm-hmm. Green Day and Offspring and everybody else are spending their time going to South America and Europe. Yeah. And we went down to Pennywise, with Pennywise to Australia, and somehow just caught on there. Uh-huh. And so we started touring internationally, started getting some some notoriety and some sales in different parts of the world. And it was time for us to move to a major. And Cargo had an upstream deal with MCA. Mm-hmm. So they basically kicked us upstairs. Got it. And that's in 97. Okay. 
when we signed with MCA and we released Dude Ranch at that point. And that was sort of Cargo and MCA It was Cargo and MCA kind of together, but it was really MCA. It was really MCA. Yeah. And that's when you had, uh, Damn It was on that. Damn It was on that. That was a big hit. That was a big, big, I mean, big hit for us. It was actually played on the radio. Yeah. And we made a video for it that was shown on MTV. So that's really where we started being played on the radio. Yeah. A lot more. Right. I remember that. I remember when I first saw the Damn It music video. It was it was late at night when mm-hmm. they start, first started to play it on MTV. And I remember being so excited. Yeah. And, t- and like, you know, telling my parents to turn on MTV and watch you guys because that was the first time I feel like I had seen outside of a club or, or right. opening for you guys or whatever. It was the first time I had seen it that broad and it was pretty exciting. It was really cool. Yeah. I mean, it, it was kind of like our dreams were actually happening and it felt like that scene in the movie, That Thing You Do, where they hear themselves on the radio for the first time and they're running around the shop screaming. Yeah. And I still feel that way when I hear a song on the radio. It's still It still stokes me out. I still get excited. I still want to roll down my window in the car and yell at people standing <laughs> on the street. Uh, no, it's a great feeling. I love it. Yeah. So that album does great, but it was really the next album. Enema of the State. Enema of the State. In 99. That, that just sort of, you guys became a comet really yes. at that point. And I remember we were uh, on the Warp Tour together in 1999, mm-hmm. and that was right when What's My Age Again had come out, yes. which was a huge hit on MTV at the time. Uh, you made this music video where you guys are running around naked, which was a hilarious music video. <laughs> How, can you con- take us back to that time when you're going from, okay, you get, you get some radio play, you, you see yourself on MTV and you get pretty excited to, whoa, we're like number one on MTV. Yeah. We are in the middle of Times Square with Carson Daly and people are going nuts. And how did it feel during that period? It was kind of surreal. Yeah. We'd been working at it at that point for seven years, which seemed like a really long time. Yeah. And, you know, we really started off at square one and, and built it ourselves. Yeah. And then with the help of label and radio people and everything else, kind of built it to this level. So, I mean, we slept on people's floors. We slept on the side of the road. We slept in the van. We would literally be on stage in the beginning saying, hey, uh, we don't have anywhere to sleep tonight. We can't afford a hotel. Can we stay at somebody's house? Yeah. And people were kind of to do that. So I felt like we paid our dues, Mm -hmm. but when it actually started happening, it it just really took off. Yeah. And it it was very, it was surreal. And it was like that part of the movie where all your dreams start to come true. Mm -hmm. It's that montage where all of a sudden, you know, (laughs) you all of a sudden we're like on MTV and then, like you said, and in Times Square and we're headlining amphitheaters and arenas. And all of a sudden it went from two of our friends riding in the van with us to help us haul gear and sell merchandise to buses and tour managers and road crew and all this other stuff that we, that, you know, we never even thought about before. And how did you keep sort of, and maybe you didn't, maybe you struggled with it, but when that happens, I imagine there are times when your kind of ego starts to grow or you start to feel a sense of entitlement because people treat, start treating you differently Mm -hmm. um, or people start coming up to you on the street and make you feel like you're different than everyone else or better than everyone else. How did you, avoid getting the big head, the classic sort of Uh I think because we surrounded ourselves with our friends and people who kept us down to earth. And I think we yeah. were pretty down to earth people in the beginning yeah. anyway. Right. I like the feeling of Blink-182 in that we've never thought of ourselves as a band that people come to watch. It's like a giant, <laughs> it, you know, it's like we're on the stage and you come to watch us do our thing. It's not. It's a giant party and we want everyone to come and sing along and have a great time. Yeah. Blink shows don't feel like Blink shows, to me, feel very like everybody 
get in this room and let's set it off. Yeah. Uh, rather than some bands that, you, I don't know, are a little pretentious and <laughs> right. take themselves a little too seriously. Is, is that part of the reason you think for why you guys have lasted as long as you have? Not, not only the songs, you have great songs and, and you have great music, but because you haven't taken yourselves as seriously, you have that sense of humor that sort of runs through. I think so, and I well. think I think just our our baseline honesty with who we are and what we want to say. Yeah, and I think when artists write songs from the heart and are honest with themselves and honest with their fans, mm-hmm. it translates. Yeah, and people, you know, people come up and say, "I listened to this one song, and it, I think like you wrote that song about me." That's how yeah. I feel, yeah. and I think that's why Blink. That's when Blink does great work. That's what it is. And how does that process work? Like you, you as a songwriter, when you're writing something, Adam's song, which is one of these songs that really resonated, yeah. with people. That's it's about suicide. Mm-hmm. Uh, how? What's your process to sort of go there in songs like that? We've talked about the sense of humor that you bring yeah. to your music and to your stage show. But then, how do you go there as a songwriter? How do you reach that place of truth? We were writing Enema of the State. We had been touring pretty much nonstop for four years at that point mm-hmm. uh, through Cheshire Cat and Dude Ranch. It was just tour, 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 play shows, play shows, yeah. get in the studio, record an album, tour, 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 play, you know. I was lonely when I was out on tour, and I would get home and I would be lonely at home. And we were kind of two-thirds, three-quarters of the way through Enema of the State recording. Mm-hmm. And I was home one day, and I was just feeling kind of down. I wrote this song. It was really dark, mm-hmm. but I liked it. And it was really honest. Mm-hmm. It was about how I feel, um, how I was feeling at the time. Mm-hmm. And I brought it to the studio and played it for Tom and our producer, Jerry Finn mm-hmm. and Travis. And I was like, I don't know if this is the right vibe for this record. And and uh, they loved it. And it turned out, you know, to be one of our biggest songs. So for me, my takeaway was when you're honest with yourself mm-hmm. and not trying to put up some kind of front or be whatever, then that really connects with people. And that's how... I try and write songs as best I can now. Yeah. When I just get out of my own way and write the truth. Is that hard when there are expectations from record labels or from all the people around you that, well, we got we to gotta get a hit. There's got to be a hit that comes out of this. You got to get radio play. Because if you get radio play, then you're going to do this Literally, literally the next record after Enema of the State. Like yeah. Enema of the State... I feel like was okay. Let's go there. Then. Was yeah. quintessential Blink One Eighty Two. It yeah. had fast songs. It had you know. It was we had funny videos. We had serious videos. We had Adam's song. We were played on the radio. We mm-hmm. had number one hits. Yeah, band skyrockets. All this success. Mm-hmm. We go into the studio to write the next record, which is called Take Off Your Pants and Jacket, mm-hmm. and we lock ourselves in a rehearsal space in San Diego and we want to, we were super ambitious. We're like, okay, we're going to make this art record. We did. We've been silly. We've been funny. We've done all this stuff. It's <laughs> a write classic this. sort of rock star trope. Yeah, right? totally. Like, I've had yeah. success. Now I want to yeah. really go. Now I really want to like <laughs> make some, make something important. And so, you know, we were listening to a bunch of bands like Fugazi, uh, a bunch of kind of like post hardcore yeah. stuff. And Jimmy World. You're listening Jim, to a lot of emo, Yeah, Jimmy right? World and Emo and, and so we wanted to go a little darker. We wanted to still have a pop sensibility, but we wanted to like make a little bit of a darker record. So we lock ourselves in the studio, work for whatever it was, three weeks, come up with this batch of songs, ready to go into the big studio and record it all. Mm-hmm. But before that, our manager comes in and we play him this whole thing and uh, he listens to it. And afterwards, he just didn't seem that stoked. And we were like, mm-hmm. what's the deal? He says, well, I think it's there's cool songs in there for sure, but there's no like happy, summertimey, bling, that that... That party Blink-182 thing. And we were like, oh, 
You just don't get art, dude. You don't get our art. And uh, and so I stormed out of the studio. Well, I didn't storm out of the studio like that, but I left the studio angry. Tom left the studio angry and frustrated. I went to my house and I picked up a good, an acoustic guitar and uh, was talking with my wife. I'm like, all right, fine. They want a happy summertimey song? Fine. And I just wrote like what I thought was, you know, just a straightforward mm-hmm. Blink song. Mm-hmm. And it was The Rock Show. Uh-huh. Which, which ended up being the first single off of that uh, album. That, it so. was a giant success. <laughs> and Tom went home that night, equally angry, and wrote a song called First Date, which was the second single off the record, and also a huge success. <laughs> so I guess it goes just goes to show that you kind of have to get, it, get out of your own way and don't get too into your own head. You guys are also known for great music videos. First Date, I think, is the funniest, in my opinion, the funniest. It's so good. Of it's the so music good, videos yeah. that you've made. Folks, if you want to go online and Google uh, or YouTube uh, First Date, it's a hilarious video. How did you guys, would you guys come up with those ideas? Would you work with uh, Tom had this producers? Idea. Yes, we work with the, these producers and directors uh, called the Malloy Brothers. Mm-hmm. They have since gone on to do a lot of great stuff. Mm-hmm. I think Tom's idea was, what if we were the Bee Gees in a video? That was, a, that was the genesis of the idea. Yeah. What, what if we were the Bee Gees? And so then we were like, well, what about if we were just like in the 70s? And then it kind of spun out to, what if we were in that movie, um, what's the Matthew McConaughey movie? Days and Confused. Days and Confused. Yeah. So then we kind of spun it into, what if we were in Days and Confused? And then it kind of became this whole, what if it was summertime in the 70s, and what would you do if you could go back in time and have the perfect 70s summertime day? And so it was like us at a water park and us just being silly. It was us and being great wigs and yeah, great mustaches and, so and the whole thing. Totally. And Tom came up with this character in the video, and he just stuck in that character all day. And it's kind of like- It was like method acting. Yeah, it was. It made me so uncomfortable all day long. <laughs> All day long, he was he was kind of like this like weird uncle-y type. He has this like mustache yeah. and kind of like a beer belly, and he kind of held his body weird. He's like, hey, what's up? And he just became this character that was so off-putting all day long and so perfect for the video. Yeah, it was. It was. Can you also talk about um, working with, uh, in terms of a supporting cast, working with a producer when you go in to write an album? I know you worked with Jerry Finn. Jerry Finn. On a couple of great records. Mm-hmm. Like, what is a great producer, and you can speak about it through him, I suppose, what can a great producer do with a great band? Jerry and the the people that work really well in Blink and probably in life are was somebody who knows how to get the best out of everybody in the band. Yeah. Because individually when, and collectively. Individually and collectively. Because yeah. when you're in a band and you have an idea for something and somebody else has an idea that's differing from you. Yeah, You know, sometimes you can, I don't think we should go to the chorus that soon. I think we need to hold off on the chorus, do another four bars or something else before we, no, 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 you don't want to do that. So a good producer is somebody that can talk to me, talk to Travis, talk to Tom, Mm -hmm. uh, now Matt, Mm -hmm. let each of us feel like we're being heard and valued and also encouraged in the way that we need to be encouraged. Mm -hmm. For some people, that means just get in there and do it. You know, just get in there and do the work. And some people need like, it's cool, dude. You're gonna you're gonna kill it. You're gonna do great. <laughs> yeah, that's a great idea. That's cool. And so you know, uh, and everybody's different. And a yeah. good producer knows how to walk that thin line. Yeah. So then, Enema of the State, take off your pants and jacket. That was this huge ride, mm-hmm. and then it led to the self-titled. Self-titled. Album, yep. Right? Self-titled is one where we said we are going to lock ourselves in a house, mm-hmm. and we are going to write. We kept. We almost called the album "Our Pet Sounds," mm. and "Pet Sounds" for the Beach Boys was an album that changed the landscape of rock and roll. Totally, 
you know, they went from being like, you know, uh, summertimey, yeah. you know, she loves you, yeah, 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 to doing really different uh, yeah. uh, harmonies and different arrangements and using different instrumentation and getting very experimental. Mm-hmm. And that, that in turn inspired the Beatles with exactly. Sgt. Pepper, and they were the, kind of that thing. They were and going so, back and forth for a few years. So yeah. we wanted to be the best, weirdest version of Blink-182. And we locked ourselves in a house in San Diego for six months. Mm-hmm. We would go into the studio with no necessary, with no plan every day, but just mm-hmm. start throwing ideas around and seeing what stuck. And mm-hmm. we would write a song, record it one way, break it all down, record it acoustically, see how that sounded, record it all electrically, uh, feeling how that sounded. And we ended up spending a year making this record. Mm-hmm. And we really wanted to do something different and special were you still feeling the pressure from the label? Like kind of, were yes. you hit, or by that point, did you have enough sort of cred? And we had enough the- cred. The thing was that the label wanted an album in six months, and we weren't ready at six months. Uh, and so we came to loggerheads with the, with the label. On timing. On timing of the record. Yeah. Uh, it ended up being the record that I'm probably most proud of. Hmm. Because of just how creative you were and the chances you were, yeah, we were to really trying and... to do something different and special and experimental, and and it was fun. Anything was fair game. Mm-hmm. Any idea we would chase down, and it wasn't one of those things where you could look back at any song and say, "Man, I wish you would have done that a little bit differently," because yeah. we'd done it every way. Yeah, but it was it was a Herculean effort. It was so much work, so much time, yeah, so much energy. And we put everything into that. I remember driving away from the mastering session mm-hmm. where we actually turned the record in. It is now done. That's it. And just being so stoked and so proud mm-hmm. and excited for the next phase. Yeah. Uh, but then the, the the next few years, there was sort of some ups and downs. There were – the band broke up for a number of up. years. I know Travis was in a, a horrific plane accident. He yeah. survived. Mm-hmm. And you also developed a profile kind of outside of music. You hosted a couple of television shows. Yeah. You moved to the UK yep. for several years. You developed a social media following. You have almost 3 million Twitter followers. <laughs> How do you think about your uh, career kind of outside of Blink-182? Well, when Blink stopped, yeah. uh, when Tom quit in 2005, I, I was just at sea. I had no, yeah. I had no idea what I was outside of Blink-182. I'd spent the past you know, 13 years building this thing and all of a sudden it was gone. Yeah. And what was I if I wasn't Mark from Blink-182? Yeah. Uh, it was very difficult. Mm. I didn't know what I wanted to do. And who around you helped you during that time? Uh, my wife. Yeah. My wife and my friends. Yeah. Uh, Travis. At that point, I was kind of forced to do other stuff outside of Blink. Right. Which was uncharted territory and some of it I liked and some of, some of it I didn't like and some of it I absolutely loved. Mm-hmm. And what are the things you liked and the things you loved? I loved doing the TV show. It was called Hoppus on Music. It yeah. was on. You had really cool guests. Yeah, we had great guests. I mean, we had Ozzy Osbourne and Dave Grohl and the Gallagher brothers. We had uh, Snoop. We had, uh, I mean, everybody. And just for people to know, it was a talk show. It was a talk and show. At one point, your, your co host was Amy Schumer. Yeah. Yeah, she uh, she was my co-host from the beginning, uh-huh. and she and I just clicked right away. She's yeah. super smart, really funny. She's one of those people that you're like, oh my God, I can't believe... I'm like, oh my God, I can't believe you said that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You also have a kind of a social media presence mm -hmm. now that you developed over that time as some of these platforms started to develop over those years Mm -hmm. as well. How do you think about your responsibility, I guess, as a a public figure with a following and 
commenting on issues going along in the world, choosing not to comment on those issues? Do you just sort of trust your gut? And I trust my gut. Yeah. I don't feel a responsibility other than I, th- I think that my responsibility is just to be myself and I don't want to be negative online. There's mm. so much negativity. Yeah. There's so much like. It's so easy. It's so easy to be to, negative. To be negative. Yeah. And, and I will comment on things that, that are important to me. Uh, things that I don't think are political issues, but I, I think of are more humanitarian issues right. like uh, LGBT rights and women's rights and, uh, and the environment. Yeah. Uh, I'll totally comment on those. Got it. Uh, but generally, you know, with Blink, we stay out of politics, mm-hmm. even, even though we all hold strong political views. Sure. And so before we get to the personal, just tell me about the cross-section of people who now come to Blink-182 It's shows. so cool. Right yeah. now, we have people, the front row looks exactly the same as it always has. It's <laughs> like teenagers all up against the barricade. Yeah. There are people who have been coming to shows for 20 years who yeah. are bringing their kids there are people who uh, – it's their very first concert that they've ever been to at all, and it's a Blink-182 concert mm-hmm. and everything in between. I, I feel very blessed that we – and this is intentional. Mm-hmm. We Travis and I, long ago, nev- we decided we don't want to be a legacy band. We don't want to be one of those bands that just goes out and plays, plays the hits, the hits uh-huh. you know, off into the sunset. We want to keep writing new music and having new albums out and pushing the envelope on what we think Blink-182 is and can be all the time. So, mm-hmm. you know, we will always play the hits, mm-hmm. but we will also be playing the new stuff as well. Oh, good. But you'll still be playing all the small things. and We'll be playing all the small get? things until I'm dead and buried, yeah. <laughs> Do you still have fun playing those songs? I love them, yeah. yeah. Because they're such great songs, and, and every song that we play kind of is like a, a scrapbook. Yeah. You think about where you were when you wrote it or kind of what it did or brings yeah. back different memories. And that's kind of the, what I love about music is you can hear a song on the radio and it takes you back to that exactly. summer that you like hung out with this girl and fell in love or somebody that broke your heart or, yeah. you know, a time that you went out and just felt invincible. Yeah. There's nothing like that. No. All right. So I want to finish up with a few get to know Mark. Cool. Questions. They're standard questions we're doing as part of the supporting cast. They relate to Los Angeles. We're known for our movies, our food. And our climate. So my okay. first question is, what is Mark Hoppus's favorite movie? Empire Strikes Back is the one that always comes to mind. Okay. Star Wars. Um, yeah. I mean, I really love Joker. I really, really like really the, 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 the most Joker. recent Joker. Wow. Is really up there. I think that there's so, there's so many things that I like about it. Uh, I First of all, the score that, that she wrote yeah. is just amazing. It's yeah. so weird and so awesome and fits so perfectly. Yeah. The color correction, the different way that things are lit, mm-hmm. his acting performance is really strong. I don't know. That's really up there. Yeah. Um, what's your favorite meal in Los Angeles? <sighs> my favorite meal. Maybe something you do at home, but I know, you know. My favorite meal in Los Angeles is probably going out to Izakaya on 3rd. Okay. And having sushi with sushi my wife place. and son. Got it. Yeah, that's yeah. I'm third near La Cienega. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, what's your favorite place in LA? Mm, we just went. I don't know if it's my favorite place, but we just discovered the uh, Huntington Gardens oh. over in Pasadena. Pasadena, yeah, yeah, and it's incredible. It is incredible. Yeah, we went there a few months ago, and my wife's like, "Oh yeah, we should go to this one. It's kind of like a park." And I was like, "Oh great, we're gonna travel, you know, all the way out to Pasadena to go visit drive. a park, right? Yeah, and it is just amazing. They have acres, like hundreds of acres of yeah. different gardens yeah. and art and cool stuff. Yeah. So I, I thought that was pretty rad. Cool. Last question: You are a parent of mm-hmm. a son, a, a senior. Yes. Um, at Harvard Westlake, if I'm allowed to say that, you are. Uh, and um, I am a 
parent of a daughter uh, who's 15 months, so yeah. I'm, I'm just the beginning of this whole thing. What is your best parenting advice? <sighs> My best parenting advice, approach everything with kindness. And the strange thing is that as I am a parent of a child who is just on the like edge of adulthood, yeah, he's going away to college, he's going to start his own life, mm-hmm. and I'm not, I woke up this morning, I'm like, wow, I only have like really two more months of hanging out with him at home, mm-hmm. because the summer's going to happen, and I'm going to be going on tour, and he's going to be off with his friends, and blah, blah, mm-hmm. blah. So um, I'd say approach everything with kindness and realize that this is the first time that anybody's done any of this. You know, it's the first time that he's a senior in high school. It's yeah. the first time that I'm a parent of a 17-year-old. You do your best and you approach everything with kindness and you try and make the world a better place for your child and that's it. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> don't be too hard on your child or too hard on yourself. Yeah, totally. Hey, okay, here's what I say for parenthood. Set boundaries for your kids Yeah, and let them be their own person within these boundaries. Yeah. Like don't, you know, whatever. You can't drink and you can't smoke and you can't do drugs and I want you home before 11 o'clock. Fine. Less than that? Yeah. Great. Yeah. Let them make mistakes. Don't be a helicopter parent as much as you can be. Let Mm -hmm. them live their own lives. Mm -hmm. You set boundaries and you let them bounce around within those boundaries as best you can. What if they start a band? What do you do then? If they start a band? I don't know. (laughs) I don't know. If your kid starts a band, support them as best you can. Yeah. You know, my mom, like I said earlier, was very supportive from day one. Yeah. You can go back to college whenever, go out there and try and reach for your dream. My dad was a little more, all right, but make sure that you have a little more pragmatic. All right. Yeah. If you want to be in a band, go ahead. Cool. Just make sure you have a career to fall back on if that doesn't work, mm-hmm. which 99 times out of 100, it's not going to work. And that's just, that's just the reality of it. But both my parents were supportive. Yeah. And you guys have done pretty well. And we've done pretty well. Yeah. Mark Hoppus, thank you so much. Thank you. I wish I had better parenting advice. What's your parenting advice? You got 15 months in. What's my parenting advice? Yeah. You did it. Marry the right person. Yeah. That's another pretty good piece of advice. Totally. Yeah. Thank you. Cool. Thank you. All right. All right.